Last week, we were in our study of Luke and interacted with the story of Jesus telling Simon to let the nets down one more time. And as we've been in the book of Luke for some time, I thought it would be good to uh, do a little preaching from the Old Testament for just a little while, and we'll come back to Luke in July. But this seemed like a great time to do it. Uh, Jesus told Simon Peter that he would be fishing for men and indicating his future ministry of apostleship. And Simon eagerly followed Jesus after the miracle of the fish filling the nets. For the month of June, Lord willing, we're going to look at a very reluctant missionary, Jonah, who did not see himself as a fisher of men, but was the bait, I guess, the fish got him. But uh, we'll go through one chapter a week for the month of June, and we'll see what we can learn from this fascinating story. And I trust that all of us, even those of us who may feel we know this story well, you know, we've been in church our whole life, some of us, and we've heard it in Sunday school a hundred times, maybe we feel like. But I think we'll all be able to add to our understanding of it, and more importantly, our application of it. So we have several national holidays throughout the year where we celebrate our freedom. And one of the particular freedoms we celebrate is the freedom to worship together in the manner that we believe is fitting. We have the free exercise of our religion, meaning we can live out our faith, or we should be able to live out our faith without any interference with, from any government authority. In a nation like ours, uh, where freedoms have been fought for and won, we have a considerable amount of what we would call patriotism a pride and love for our country, and different people exercise their freedoms in different ways. So when we have those national celebrations, we celebrate by getting together over a barbecue or going, some people go boating or camping or setting off fireworks, generally having a good time. Flags are flown, red, white, and blue flowers and decorations are put out and we show our patriotism. And in other nations, they celebrate patriotism as well. Most people feel some amount of patriotism or loyalty to their country or even to their local sports team. People cheer for the local team to win. We cheer for our country, our national identity, and we desire our nation to be respected and feared. Now, this means we also have another side to our patriotism, which sometimes rears its ugly head, and that is a feeling of super superiority over other nations, a disgust or reviling even for those nations uh, who we feel are evil and especially those that we know are abusing humans, we tend to have antagonistic thoughts towards them, right? So for most of us patriots, and I would consider myself one, but we wouldn't feel too bad if some evil government were destroyed. If we knew that government was greatly oppressive and abusive towards people, it, it maybe could uh, find, we could find it difficult to love a nation like that enough to want to see them receive the grace of God. It's possible. What if there were an enemy so known for brutality that if a town knew this nation was coming, the entire town would commit suicide rather than fall into the hands of the enemy? What if the enemy was famous for its methods of torture? What if this particular enemy employed a type of torture where they would bury a captive up to the neck in the hot desert sand with only their heads sticking out, then piercing a device through the tongue that forced it out of the mouth to dry up while the sun was beating down onto the person 
until they literally went mad before finally dying. What if that enemy was so hated in the world and was a constant threat to others? And what if God told you to go there and preach to them and tell them to repent? This is exactly what happened to Jonah. All those things I mentioned are recorded of the Assyrians, the bitter enemy of every other nation in their time, including Israel. Assyria was known as being a vicious, tyrannical nation, and its capital was Nineveh. And leaders of this great uh, evil nation were horribly brutal. Uh, there was one named Sherbanapal. I'm not sure if I said that right. He was the grandson of Sennacherib, uh, who we can read about in the Bible, but his grandson was accustomed to tearing off the lips and hands of his victims. Another one named Tiglath-Pileser flayed victims alive and made great piles of their skulls. Other methods included drawing and quartering victims. And if you don't know what that means, you can look that up. And many other methods of brutality. Jonah, by the way, was a real person. The story of Jonah is not an allegory or a metaphor or anything else. He was a real prophet. Prophets in that day gave messages or oracles against other nations, but they also gave them from the safety of their homeland, usually. But Jonah was give, had given a message previously, and this is why we always say, you know, we can look to other parts of Scripture to teach us about other parts of Scripture, because Scripture is so complete that it often speaks one area to another area. So in 2 Kings 14, verse 25, we can read about Jonah there. Um, it says he, and that's not Jonah, but restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. This is a type of message that a prophet loves to give. Right? He prophesied that God would restore the border of Israel. So that was one of Jonah's prophecies. That's the, the kind that he loved to give. And this ought to make a prophet popular and loved. Preachers today that only give happy messages are loved. When God puts into a prophet's heart or a preacher's heart a message that is not so popular, he's not so loved. And there's a temptation to run from that kind of message. I can tell you, I've been there. When you know that a certain message and you have to preach it, it's going to goad somebody in the church a little bit, right? It's just to be just easier to not give that message. So when the pastor calls every Christian to share the gospel, and we suspect someone will not receive it, we would choose to ignore God and turn the other way. This is especially true if the person... He is calling us to speak to is an enemy. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, the great capital city of the most violent and evil people of his time. Jonah didn't want to do it. And we'll start reading in Jonah 1, the first three verses to start us off. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So here we see that Jonah, the same Jonah, who's recorded in the book of Kings for his positive message towards Israel, being told to go and preach to the most evil enemy you could imagine. Now we could name some areas today in our world that most of us would not want to go to. What if God did call us to do this? Would we obey? What if he calls you to bless an enemy right here in your own community? Would you obey? There are a multitude of reasons why it makes sense that Jonah didn't want this mission. Perhaps he feared for his safety. Perhaps he was a patriot. He couldn't imagine going to preach to an enemy of his nation and an enemy of God. Perhaps he's worried about his image. What people will think about him for reaching out to the wrong kind of people. However, one thing is clear. Jonah did not duck out of the assignment because he was unsure of it. God spoke directly to him, and as we will see later, he knew what God's will is for him. So picking back up at verse 4, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to, to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Not, it's not a sports team, by the way. Those are the guys that were on the boat. And each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the Lord knew, for the men knew that he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now there are a lot of interesting points here. God is pretty insistent that Jonah give the message he was told to give. He will make it as difficult or uncomfortable as needed to get those who he wants to serve him to do what is required. And the same applies today to anyone who is called upon to do God's work. Many times a message must be given and God has been clear that it is to be preached. A preacher often has a dilemma. If he preaches the message God has given him if, and the message is offensive or challenging, he's tempted to preach a different message. Yet God will pursue that preacher until he gives the message he's called to give. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, recorded that he would get physically sick until he gave the word that God had commanded him to give. That's how God got him to finally give it. He would feel sick until he did the work he was called to do. Then he says he would figuratively vomit out the word and afterwards feel relief as one who has had a stomach illness. That's kind of, I know that's a little bit disgusting, but that's the language that uh, Jeremiah used. That's how he felt about it. Jonah certainly had to know better, yet he turned and went the other way. Before we condemn him for doing so, 
we should ask ourselves, how often do we know of the right course to take, having a clear direction from God, whether from Scripture or from guidance through His Holy Spirit, and yet we turn and go in the wrong direction. And like Jonah, we find ourselves in some kind of predicament where we know we were wrong and that as a result of our disobedience, we are experiencing some amount of difficulty. Now, we must be careful here to say that we're not saying that anyone experiencing difficulty is somehow not in God's will. That's not necessarily the fact, the, the case. In fact, often when someone is in God's will, the enemy of our souls is most active in coming against us. Sometimes difficulty is because we're running from God like Jonah did. Sometimes difficulty comes because we're serving Paul, God like Paul did, who was stoned and jailed, eventually died for his faith. How can you know if the difficulty you are encountering is because you are out of God's will or in it, if that's the case? Or whether you are just simply going through life with its ups and downs? The one who daily seeks God, never ceasing in prayer, searching the scriptures and applying the wisdom of God to every situation will know. The one who goes along just happy to be saved and never really fully committed to a life of devotion to God, they'll never be able to tell. The Bible tells us that God grants discernment or wisdom to those who seek it. So God sends a storm. And while Jonah sleeps below, the sailors are doing everything they know of to save the ship and themselves. They must have had an idea of the supernatural origin of this storm. And there's two good reasons we can assume that. One is that experienced sailors don't set out in the storm. And this says the storm began quickly as soon as they set out. Second, it says the sailors cried out to their own gods. Being pagans in, these, in those days, it would be typical to worship several gods. In most cases, people had what they considered a personal god, and then they would have a family god or a clan god that their clan or family worshipped. And then often they would have a national god as well. So here it records that they were each crying out to their own god. And they throw the cargo off the ship. This is to lighten the ship to try to help it ride above the water possibly as a type of sacrifice to the God of the sea, because that's a, definitely a possibility. That's not recorded in scripture, but that was sometimes done as well. Meanwhile, Jonah sleeps. How could he be sleeping in such a storm? The only person other than him that I know who did this was Jesus, and that was because he was the Prince of Peace. Jonah, why he could sleep, we don't know. Perhaps he was in a depression, having sinned against God, and some people, when they're depressed, can sleep quite easily. Perhaps he was simply tired. We aren't told the reason he was sleeping. The captain says, come out and join our prayer meeting. They are desperate for an escape from this storm. So perhaps if Jonah comes and prays to his deity, then they will be relieved. Now they cast lots. This is probably a type of dice, or the idea is kind of like dice that was used in those days. It's not a reference to gambling in that sense of like we're trying to win something here, but rather it was a superstitious type of divination or seeking some spiritual guidance where they hope to learn something of a spiritual matter. And while this is not God's way of doing things, he apparently intervened in the process, causing 
these sailors to realize that Jonah was guilty. So now Jonah gets prop peppered with questions. He's like, they're like, what is your occupation? Where are you from? What's your country? Where are your people? And notice Jonah's answer. I am a Hebrew. This would alert the sailors immediately of his religion and the fact that he's a monotheist, someone who believes only in one God. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this confession terrifies them. And in the circumstances, they may begin, they may be beginning to realize that the God of the Hebrews is powerful. Jonah apparently had told them he was running from God, as verse 10 tells us. And so they say, what have you done? Now, when a non-believer says, what have you done? You should probably pay attention. Heaven forbid that we be accused by non-believers for not living up to our proclamation of faith. In fact, one of the great tools of the enemy in keeping others away from the church is hypocrisy. Or a failure to live in a manner worthy of our calling. So when the world looks at us and sees us not practicing what we claim to believe, even they know there's something wrong. We need to strive to live up to our profession of faith. This would have been a very condemning statement to Jonah. The prophet of God, the one who should be proclaiming God's words, is shamed by those who say to him, What have you done? Finally, you see the sailors coming to an understanding of the power of God. What should we do? Jonah answers, but his answer gives them quite a conundrum. If this God, who they now realize is powerful, is causing the storm, and if this man belongs to that God, they think it must be insanity then to throw Jonah overboard. So they try again to get to the shore. Yet they continue to be tossed about, and the sea grows even wilder than before. And now they clearly understand they must listen to this man. They must obey him and throw him overboard, yet they are still concerned that they will be guilty for his life. Even in those days, it was murder to kill a man without a trial, and throwing a man overboard in the middle of the sea was the equivalent of just putting him to death. So they cry out to God that he not hold it against them, throw him in the water, and immediately the storm subsides. The sailors now are safe, the whole incident, though, has caused them to fear, and they make a sacrifice to the Lord. So they actually have more fear after the sea has calmed, almost, than before. Why? Well, remember from last week, we were talking about an encounter with the holiness of God. is a frightening thing. Now, it has often been said that even in Jonah's disobedience, he used him to save these sailors. Now, we must be careful not to put more than what the scripture says into it. And the polytheistic mindset of these men, polytheistic means they worshiped many gods. It may be that they simply added the God of the Hebrews to the number of gods they already worshiped. Or it is possible they went and made sacrifices to Yahweh and made oaths to him and that was it. It is possible that some of them converted to Judaism, but the Bible simply does not tell us that. So be careful. Sometimes people will teach that, oh yeah, these guys got saved because of Jonah. The Bible doesn't clearly teach us that. I wouldn't rule out the, pop, uh, the possibility though. Just as today, we cannot assume that everyone who comes to church 
on Easter or Christmas or even every Sunday. Uh, or we can't assume that even anyone who professes the faith is necessarily a truly saved person. The Bible says we must confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only God knows the heart of every person. Many who say, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven according to Jesus Christ. However, we could say that these men did have an experience that certainly should have helped them understand that Yahweh is the God who controls the winds and the sea. And this experience may very well have made them into sincere seekers, but again, we must not go further than what the Bible tells us. When it comes to people learning about God and accepting him as the God, it often happens in different steps. Some hear the gospel proclaimed and accepted immediately. Others hear it many times and it's never received in faith or believed. Some hear it and seem to accept it and walk away later from it. And then some accept it and grow and live in the life of the saved. This is what Jesus said in the parable of the seeds. The results are not up to us. Being faithful to what he calls each of us to do individually is up to us. So in the case of these sailors, if nothing else, they were without excuse. God made himself known to them in power, and if this caused them to follow him, then he would have honored that. And if they went back to their pagan gods, then on their judgment day, they were without excuse. When we share the gospel, the results are not up to us. So what does Jonah have to do with the Great Commission? Well, let's go back and read it again. I read it before we started, but from Matthew 28, starting at 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus calls believers to make other disciples. This passage has been preached in many different ways. Some say the biggest point of emphasis is the goal. Others say the biggest point of the emphasis is make disciples. Others focus on baptizing them. And some see this mainly as a passage that teaches us about the empowering of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit is going to help us to proclaim. And all of those are true. But what is the focus? Well, we should focus on the entire command. Using Christ's authority that he gives us, we are to go. For some, we go into our community, workplace, or family. For others, they go to other cities, states, or even countries, but all are to go. We are to make disciples. Notice this doesn't say make converts. Some people feel their evangelism has done that. Well, I got so-and-so to say a prayer, to say their belief in Jesus. He's not say, he doesn't say make converts. Jesus is not only interested in getting people saved, he's interested in them becoming disciples. Disciple becomes like the one he follows. Each Christian should be ever growing to be more like Christ. And we are to baptize, as Jesus showed by example, by humbling himself to be baptized by John in obedience to the Father, 
so is each Christian to humble themselves and in obedience to Christ be baptized. Finally, we're to be teaching all that Jesus commanded and remember that he is with us always. Finally, we must not look only to what is known as the Great Commission for instruction. Luke 24, 46 to 49 has another command of Jesus. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Note that repentance and forgiveness of sins is linked here. Without repentance, you cannot have forgiveness. We must be clear when presenting the gospel, salvation only comes after repentance. The message of the cross is not that God saves everyone who wants to be saved, but that he saves those who are truly repentant. Forgiveness from God is dependent on the repentance of man. So don't live in sin and say, I'm okay with Jesus. Anyone who lives in continual sin, being unrepentant and willfully continuing in that sin is not okay with Jesus. Remember, this isn't about perfection, it's about the heart. The person with a repentant heart may slip and may fail at times to live up to that standard, but they will always be saddened and regretful about that sin and confess it to Christ in order to move forward in growth. The person who proudly sins, always makes excuses for their behavior, or who year by year is no more sanctified than the year before, is not a repentant person. True repentance brings the grace of God, but the willfully disobedient person will bring judgment upon themselves. Choose to be repentant. Be repentant daily. It was the very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses when he pounded them on the wall at Wittenberg. The very first one said, when Jesus, when our Lord said repent, he meant to live a life of repentance. Isaiah 1, 16 to 20. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has called us to a task. And like Jonah, the task may at times seem difficult or even dangerous. We are given the great commission. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Will you accept your commission? Or like Jonah, will you shy away? Either way, God's will is going to happen. He will use every person for his purposes, as we learned about in Sunday school this morning. What is your choice? Will you willingly follow and say to Jesus, All to Jesus I surrender. Or will you turn away from his will and suffer the consequences of not living your life entirely? Jonah could justify his actions only so far. 
He may have said to himself, the Assyrians are my enemy. I would shame myself by going to them. They may kill me. They don't deserve to hear from a prophet. And even if they don't kill me, my own countrymen certainly will when I return. Yet all the while he knew in his heart he was wrong. He knew it. But he kept on his path until he had no other choice but to say, I surrender all. Next week, we're going to see how Jonah dealt with the next part of the story when he was in the fish. But clearly from chapter 1, we've learned that it doesn't help a person at all to go the opposite direction from where God's sending them. So let us all be attentive to the Lord and see how he's calling us in his great commission. Where is your Nineveh? Is there someone that you think needs the gospel, but you're like, I don't even want to talk to that person. Maybe some of you are called to leave your community like Jonah was. That's uncomfortable, right? We just, uh, we have tons of missionary stories that could be shared. Someone who went reluctantly, perhaps, or being frightened, unsure, but when God is calling us and he continues to call, our best strategy will be obedience. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you. Once again, Lord, your word has spoken to me, and I hope it's spoken to the rest of us as well, Lord, that you have a commission for us. You've commissioned all of us to be part of your kingdom and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, even people that may be very unpleasant to us. You've called us to give a message sometimes that may not be received well, may even bring persecution to us. But Lord, you've called us nonetheless. May we be those who trust your word and are empowered by your spirit to do the work you've called us to, that our entire lives may bring all glory and honor to our Lord and King, Jesus Christ.